I'm Smadarn Oz, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. I'm there right now. <laughs> Why? <laughs> You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The one them on the Visceral Change podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the latest edition of The Chopping Block. I am here with one of the most wonderful people on the planet, Dr. Smada Naoz. Smada, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. I appreciate you asking. Very excited to chop it up with you today on The Chopping Block. Um, as you know, we dig into a lot of issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion in a critical way. And... In my experience with visceral change, I've had the honor to work very closely with the sciences, really space science in terms of astro and physics. And um, that's how you and I met one time and in Amsterdam, and we uh, got a chance to share experiences and knowledge as I was doing some workshops. And uh, it's very clear to me that you are a champion in DEI in the world of astrophysics and as an astrophysicist. And so Smadar, you are the associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at UCLA, uh, which is in the Division of Astronomy and Astrophysics, correct? Um, the division is within the um, department. Okay, the division's within the department. All right, lovely. Uh, and so, I, you know, I'm really excited to dig into this today. And I think we have some viewers that want to learn a little bit more because when we think about astro and, and physics, we don't really think about diversity, equity, or inclusion, and you're someone who lives it. So um, I think you're going to have a lot of powerful things to share today. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, so, you know, Smadar Naoz, one of the few people I know with a Wikipedia page, which is so exciting because that makes my life a little bit easier. <laughs> and it's for good reason that you have one. So, uh, Instead of asking, you know, sort of how you began your journey, um, feel free to go there. I'm curious to know, tell us a little bit about how you first came to admire space science and in particular astrophysics. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a nice question. Um, actually, it goes all the way back to uh, when I was five years old. And um, it's one of my sweetest childhood memories. Uh, we had, this is Israel in the 80s. Okay. And we had a um, black and white TV. <laughs> Most people in Israel at that time had black and white TV, TVs. And my mother really liked to see Star Trek, the first generation. And it was a pastime for me and my younger sister. We would sit together with my mother and see Star Trek, the first generation, then the original series. Of course. <laughs> That's right. As a, what a tracky am I? Um, Star Trek, the original series. Um, and she would read to us the subtitles because we didn't know English at the time. And we had snacks and, and it just opened my mind to know that there is space out there. And it was pretty, pretty amazing. And, um, and then I was really, I, I tried to learn to read as fast as possible so I can really get to understand and read as much as I can about space. I had so many questions and my parents didn't know to how to answer most of them. Right. Um, and we had, um, we had a, a, like a volume of encyclopedia at the house of uh, the equivalent of letter D. 
So I've learned a lot about dinosaurs. Nice. <laughs> I, um, but I, I, so I started to have a plan. This is still age of five of what I want to do in my life. And um, first it was to be an astronaut. Um, but very soon I realized that I was born in the wrong country to be an astronaut, at least at that time. Okay. Um, and then an astrophysicist or an astronomer, I wasn't clear exactly what are the differences at that age. Mm -hmm. um, or even archaeologist, which was like number three. In my, wow. Uh, so you had it laid out. Yeah, I had a list. I had a room. And then, you know, I, this is how it began. So, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. And uh, I don't know if there are many people out there who can start their resume at the age of five in terms of <laughs> planning or thinking where you want to go. Uh, that's great. You know, you mentioned something and it reminds me because I did some digging um, as I prepared for our discussion today. And I found that Israel is the number two country in the world to study space science. It's, ju it's just behind Scotland and just ahead of Canada, which is, which was amazing. You know, uh, however, there was a 2019 report um, of the AIP conference proceedings about women in Israel. And it was a study that found that women make up just 16% of the physics degrees in, in Israel, uh, which is last second to last only behind electrical engineering. Uh, now, I don't know if these numbers are better or worse than sort of a child in the 80s and when you came up and were pursuing these uh, these ideas. And then even when you were pursuing your degree later on at, at Tel Aviv. Uh, but given this paradox, right, this idea of the number two country to study space science, but only 16% women, how were you able to turn this dream of Star Trek and the stars into an actual reality, given that that perceived challenge? That's also a very good question because I was not allowed actually to study physics in high school. I was told that I'm too stupid. Oh, wow. There was a, like an elective in the ninth grade and the conclusion of that teacher after I asked many, many questions um, that I cannot go to study um, maybe the equivalent of AP. I don't know exactly how to equivalent those um, in 10th and 11th and 12th grade. So I wasn't allowed to study it. Um, so that was a big obstacle, but I still really loved physics. In retrospect, I know that not all of my questions were uh, silly. Some of them were maybe naive. Some of them were actually pretty good, I think. I went and I bought some books. I used to work a lot as a babysitter and tutor, so I'd be able to, um, to have money to buy some books. So I bought some books in physics and tried to study by myself. Sure. Um, I think... I think I, I, I come from a kind of old-fashioned family. It's a very big family. Um, I mean, the extended family is big. We are just the four of us, two parents, two, <laughs> two kids. But, um, but I'm, the, I'm a first-generation college. I'm the only person with a PhD out of the entire extended 500 uh, wow people and so it wasn't I cannot say that it was something that I was um, pushed toward but I wanted something else I don't know if it makes sense or sure. <laughs> um, I wanted 
I, I did not have a role model. I cannot say that I had a role model, not in the family, not from teachers, not in the TV, because all the, you know, all the, all the professors, all the physicists, till this day, in, you know, in the media are men. <laughs> so it's really, there was no role model. I just wanted to prove that I can, because all I heard is that I cannot. I heard so often that I cannot do anything STEM-like. Um, and while it created this huge imposter syndrome, the, the feeling that I cannot do it, that I'm an imposter, that I should not be here, and created this big anxiety from tests and, um, and doubting my ability, it also made me more driven. Sure. Um, it's kind of funny. In the eighth grade, we had an aptitude test. And um, this test was supposed to predict our career in life, our success in life, and which high school can we go to? And um, they say you cannot fail in this test that I just you know, tell you what, <laughs> but I really failed in this test. So the, um, the teacher the, and the counselor sat and tried to explain to me what is a Gaussian curve, a bell curve. And they said, they put a ruler and they said, look, this is the average, this is above average, this is below average. Look how below the average you are in every single subject. And I was indeed below. <laughs> and, you know, now I know a lot below. And, um, and then they had predictions. So the prediction to finish high school in any STEM field was 0%. The prediction wow. to finish um, a trade high school um, was 30%. And career in life was suggested to be a hairdresser. And then the counselor said, well, you know, your fine motor skills are also very, very low. Maybe you shouldn't be around people's ears with scissors. So you can be the shampoo girl. And I remember how I saw, you know, my entire future crumbling at that moment. I had good grades. I was reading every possible book that was translated into Hebrew about astronomy. I, I, you know, I thought that I can do it. And then, you know, she said, not everyone go to university, it's fine. And I remember how devastated I was because here, you know, um, here there is a proof that I cannot do it, mm. <laughs> which is, um, and that also in really, um, it was a big obstacle for me then to go to a good high school. I, I, was, I didn't get to the high school of my choice, to the high school that I did end up to, to go to. Um, I did not get in. I actually had to go to an interview. And the interviewer said, well, you know, he, he was like, I'm giving you a chance, you know, out of the goodness of my heart or something and to get to have an interview <laughs> at all and during the interview he was like well i learned all these interesting things about um about the moon because i was just reading for i don't know how many times that some book about the moon um and he said but i don't know what to do with this test i mean there's no way that you'll do it i said how about we'll do the following let me do a, a summer school and if i'll pass with whatever grade you'll set i'm in and if not, it's my problem and I'll need to find a different, a different high school. And he said, yes, we should connect. I took the, 
I took the summer school, I passed all the grades with everything and my imposter syndrome and anxiety from test began <laughs> in, the, in ways that was beyond, um, it was really hard. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to give in. I, this was my chance. I didn't want to be a shampoo girl. And I have nothing against shampoo girls. It's just not what my dream was. And right. my dream was very specific. And here come, comes a bunch of people saying that I cannot do it. And I, I wasn't sure of why, you know? And I don't know. It's, um, it's interesting because so when I tell this story to people, many times people ask me, so why? Why didn't you do very well on your exam? What was the reason? And I think one can try to find all kinds of reasons. You know, I have dyslexia, for example, and it wasn't discovered until very, very late in life. Sure. And um, I also think that those tests actually are not good predictors. There are lots of research that show that Agreed. these tests mainly correlate with with the stereotype facts. They correlate with gender, they correlate with ethnicity, they correlate with opportunities. Yeah. And right. I don't think they are a predictor for anything. And, um, but they, they were a huge obstacle for me. So. Yeah, that's, that's powerful and moving. I mean, <clears throat> I, you know, and that's the stuff we talk about and we try to fight against when we discuss things like stereotypes and stigmas and you know in my world cooling out you know and here comes a person with this dream especially women um of wanting to do something that is not stereotypical based on where society has this hierarchy um and then the people who are in control of your future or who can have an impact on it say actually you look like you might be better tailored for this and try to fit you back into the stereotypical box and the fact that you were able to push through is is you know, profound in its own right. And it just leads me to ask, you know, I'd be interested to know if you had any support during this journey, Smadar, in terms of, I know you said you were the only in your family and in the extended family of 500, 500 plus. What about friends, advisors, coworkers, anybody? Because I, I can't imagine you doing this on your own. And if you did, that's even more mind blowing. So talk about the support systems in your life during this process. Um, so I think at that particular time, I had no support. I mean, I think that my parents thought, I mean, they really were trying to support me in the ways that they could, which saying it's okay, you know, you don't have to go to university, or maybe you can study something less challenging, which for me was really the opposite of support that I needed, but they, they really tried their best. Um, there was in high school later on, there was a remarkable, uh, math teacher that kind of believed in me and she could see beyond the anxiety of taking a test, <laughs> which, so from since, since the eighth grade, every test, maybe until, um, the end of my bachelor degree ended in tears. I just, I couldn't, because I was afraid that. This is the moment. This is the moment when they'll say, here, you, you cannot be here. What are you doing? This is not, this is not where you're supposed to be. So, um, and she could see beyond it. And, and she believed in me, which is kind of, I think, um, 
it was also very hard for me to believe that someone believes in me. Um, and then during my bachelor degree, which was in physics, and um, there are not a lot of women, and it was um, somewhat very competitive. I think the best support that I had is, uh, and still have, is from my husband who was there and my boyfriend. Um, and he, he also kind of believed in me, which is, at least, you know, till this day, I'm sorry to say, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, in many ways, that moment in the eighth grade, even though it's been so long, and even though I've proven so much, and even though I'm here, you know, a professor at UCLA, um, that, that girl back then was told that she cannot do her, you know, she cannot do it, she cannot cut it, she is not good enough, she will never be good enough. Right. That girl still exists somewhere within me, and right. it's pretty hard to overcome. And... You know, and I also, I want to stress, I don't blame my parents. Um, oh. the, um, the structure in Israel is, um, is um, the, it's slightly maybe similar and also different in some ways to the U.S. It's very heterogenic. There, is, um, um, there are uh, people from everywhere. And if we'll focus on the Jewish community for a second, um, there are the most, probably most of the Jewish people that you've met in the U.S. are Ashkenazi Jews. Um, yeah. But there are also a lot of Jews, and about 50% of us, that came from Middle Eastern countries. Sure. Maybe some people heard of the term Sephardic, and maybe even fewer people heard of the term Mizrahi, which okay. is what we are. And... Um, and when Israel was founded, most of the people were Ashkenazis. These are Jewish people who came from Europe in the Jewish community. Um, they either escaped the Holocaust or came before the Holocaust uh, to, to Israel. Mm -hmm. But after Israel was founded, and especially after um, the independence war that wiped out 1% of the population, um, there was a big immigration from Middle Eastern countries and Arab countries. And for example, my mother was born in Iraq and she and her family immigrated to Israel. And many of these people came with nothing but their clothes. Mm. They came with nothing to a country that was just founded, like trying to recover from a brutal war and had no resources. So they were put in, um, they called us, there's no good way to say it in, in English, but the idea is it was like some sort of a, a refugee absorption camp. And so this is where my mother was, grew up, I mean, in such a place. And then they were moved to subsidized housing that were controlled by the government. And they sure. were found either uh, specific neighborhoods for them or specific towns in the middle of the desert. And so you can, you can see where it's going. This is a... Mm -hmm. There are places with no infrastructure, not a lot of education, not a lot of opportunity. Um, and the interesting thing is that now, you know, there's, there was a lot of mixing in Israel between um, the Mizrahi Jews and the Ashkenazi Jews. But yet still, 
well, 70 years later, um, there are not enough representation of Mizrahi Jews in academia or any actually um, high, um, high offices. Sure, in, okay. And, you know, so, and there's not a lot of studies about it. It's not something that people like to study or really trying to figure it out. The last big study was in 2007 and showed that less than 9% of um, high um, of faculty in academia and the universities in Israel are held by Mizrahi, while there's about 50 or 40 percent, depending how you count, of Mizrahi in the in Israel itself. So, wow, that's 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 interesting, and and you know makes sense in terms of the studies because as I was again doing some research, I mean the most recent thing I was able to find was from. 2012 or something like that on <clears throat> it was it was actually on a document on sort of astrophysics in Israel and it was you know it was just so dated I mean not that it was irrelevant don't get me wrong and then another document I found which was published I mentioned last year a lot of the citations minus the one I read but a lot of the citations were from 1960s and and behind and I, was, I just didn't make sense to me how this was published last year and, and then the sites are, you know, and so it was, <clears throat> it's interesting when you, when you talk about these, these factors and these facets and the role um, that some of the barriers played and the, the statistics and, you know, your mom's journey, I'm sure was one for its own chopping block and some of the, the things she saw there, but she, I'm, I'm happy to see, right. That there's success at the end of her, at the end of her tunnel, which, for you, and then here you are today living the dream out. And so, although the numbers there in terms of academicians in Israel might be difficult to find, let's, let's talk about a number I was able to find at least. And that was that, uh, you know, universities.com ranks UCLA as the seventh best institution for astrophysics in the United States. Uh, you and I have worked together a number of times. <laughs> um, and we've worked on exploring the boundaries of DEI as it pertains to the field. Um, and I'd be curious to know, Smadar, in your estimation, what is the greatest, and this is a conversation we've had offline or like in passing or in illusion in terms of the work that we do, but and maybe there is no answer, but in your estimation, what is the greatest challenge in terms of DEI facing astro and physics uh, at UCLA or in general? I think in general, I think in some ways, UCLA is representative. Sure. Um, in some ways, there are some progress in, in UCLA. So in general, I think It's the assumption that everything is fine. <laughs> that we reached the that we reached it. We have, you know, we have, we have laws, everything is fine, everything is open. Whoever wants to study can come and study, right? So what's what's the problem? That assumption, I think, is the major um, is one of the major obstacles. And I think the second one is um, that this is not our place 
to do. We are scientists. Ah, We're sure. not supposed to go and try mm -hmm. to understand why there is why we're low in representation in terms of women and underrepresented minorities where are they this is not our job because we're scientists and we're basing everything on merit and therefore we're fine that these two assumptions that people have i think are ones are those that um produce the most challenges because it's something so ingrained in in the culture and it's so hard to change it and they're also right yeah no i can <laughs> i was going to echo that i could definitely see that uh because that's what i conclude and when people ask me you know what do you think it is i tell them i don't come from this world but my professional opinion would say that you know, this field in particular, more than more than most, see things very black and white to the degree where this work isn't isn't valued in the same way because it's not seen as imperative in terms of the final decision or an outcome or the ways in which the field operates. And you know, you're a championing voice in stressing the importance of DEI. And so I guess my follow-ups went on, and maybe the answer to this was your first question, your first statement, which was, um, it's already resolved. My follow-up is, you know, you, you time and time and again say, here are the issues, here's the issues. Here's how we can address this. So why are we still in the same place we were? Why hasn't this been actualized, you think, in the field? Because there are not enough people who say. <laughs> You know, and I think it it's is. also, and it, you know, I think that um, it's kind of frowned upon, right? So how can, I mean, why do you devote so much time for DEI, right? And especially in light of these two assumptions, one assumption, it was resolved, right? If women want, they can, there's no law that prohibits anyone to go and study. So why? why? Uh, and then the other assumption that it's, um, um, that it's not our job then if I work on DEI issues, if I think, if I devote time for it, then probably, right, the next logical <laughs> conclusion is that my research is bad. <laughs> then if my research is bad, why would anyone take me seriously? Right. I have the privilege to uh, work on DEI issues because I feel that my privilege, that my, that my research is strong and that's my privilege. That's right. Strong and I can play in the, um, you know, as a, as a, as a player in the research field, I think I'm also listening to in some extent, not probably, mm, <laughs> sure. but, sure. you know, um, but there's also another, I think another aspect to it is that, and this is something that it took me a while. It was a process to, to realize this, that I'm perceived as white here which comes also with uh, a privilege and a power with that privilege because as um as a as a white person and i do the quotation marks because I, a few minutes ago i was talking about um about the structure the complicated structure in israel and as a mizrahi i never felt as the person with power i'm not ashkenazi i can pass as ashkenazi i have fair skin, fair hair, so it's, um, 
it's a easy pass, but most people always ask <laughs> in, in Israel because it's so hard. So people just ask to, to understand where you belong and where you should be. That's right. Uh, so it, it was a process to see that here there is a set of privileges that come with the way that I look yep. that I can then utilize to move things forward. That people will listen to me based on the, perce- the perception that I'm white. That makes sense? Of course. You know, it makes sense to me. Uh, it's the, the agency. I'd, I would just venture to wonder if any of that changes once you open your mouth and begin talking with your accent. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, so for example, there's this example that I give. Um, my husband is uh, dark skinned. And we went one to a store, once to a store, and there was a police person, a police officer, who started circling him. And my husband didn't pay attention. He didn't see it. He was looking at something. But I saw it. And I saw the, the policeman like, moving around, looking at him, you know, having his hand too often on the gun, which made me really scared. So I came, and knowing that I look white, I came and I held his hand. And the policeman left. I didn't oh, wow. because I was afraid that the policeman will yeah. hear a yes. stick in a funny language and will be mad or something. But interesting. Yeah. So, and my husband, I don't think he noticed that. <laughs> he has no idea of what happened. He's, but that's that's it, isn't it? I mean, that's it's right. That's the amazing thing about it and about using your agency, but also having an understanding of what allyship is. And then also the dangers of, of not being aware of wh- where we fit in the social hierarchy. Uh, it's, at that point in time, it's less about a discussion of whether or not this should happen and this is fair and, and more of a discussion about here's how it is right now. And so as we journey towards dis- dismantling this, how do we give ourselves the space to, to, uh, to be... Uh, stewards of, of expression in the safest way possible. Uh, and, you know, I want to be frank for a minute because, you know, as we're talking about this particular field in this world and diversity in astrophysics, I just have, you know, I, I confess I've, I've read a few different bios of astrophysicists and other folks, and I've never once come across even the suggestion of diversity, equity, or inclusion. I mean, no one's ever mentioned it. It's not highlighted in a biography. It's not in any write-up at all in terms of really anything. I've, I've very rarely even seen first generation mentioned. So I have to ask, I mean, is, does, can diversity and inclusion work? Can it work in this field or is it just, are folks feel like they're wasting their time? Is it a worthwhile effort? Of course, the answer is yes, but is this field a field where we can actually see change in diversity and inclusion? I think so. I see change in UCLA. I okay. This is where, in some ways, UCLA is no longer a representative example. Um, in the past, in UCLA, six years, five years, using calendar, COVID has changed the perception of time. Oh, yes, it has. Um, but... In the years since I've come, came to UCLA, um, things have changed. And uh, not just in 
the population of our students, but also in um, what considered to be important, which DEI started to rank higher and higher. People are talking about the need for equity, even when I'm not around. And then other people say, oh, did you know this conversation came out? <laughs> we thought that you'll be interested to hear. And yes, I am. I'm very happy to hear it. I mean, I wouldn't say like, that's it, everyone are <laughs> bought into it, but I do see the change. I see this coming, uh, you know, issues are being discussed even before I need to raise my hand and say, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> maybe. Right. So people are bringing it up and um, people are participating, trying to learn more. We have lots of activities that we're running on a, um, on a quarter basis, on a weekly basis, depending when uh, in the year. And it seems that we have more and more participants, more and more people are eager to learn and educate themselves. More and more people are eager to change. Yeah. And there have been changes. So I think there is, and I think we're benefiting from it as a community because we are better for it. We're not just better human beings. We, I think we're better researchers because we're not, um, someone once told me that um, they're, you know, they like it when their their collaborators complete their sentences. Mm. And I think, well, if I'm with someone who completes my sentences, you know, I just I'm I'm in the same direction. I want yeah. someone who, you know, who challenged me and someone who doesn't think like me. So I I think we are benefiting from it, and it's not just UCLA. There are, I think, more and more of the I would say the junior generation, considering me as another junior person, although. No longer a junior so much, but fine. Um, mm. That are devoting a lot of efforts and time to DEI issues, yes. and we see changes. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, good. Uh, well, that's good to hear, and that's that's promising. And you know, one area, you know, the, the space sciences, and really any field can probably get better at is paying homage, giving credit where credit is due. <clears throat> and I say that because you, you figured out something very, very uh, trendsetting, transformative, game-changing in terms of uh, the three-body problem that might have caused a little bit of a stir or a little bit of a rift due to your discovery, especially in terms of maybe gender dynamics possibly or I would, I would imagine so, um, given the history of women in, in the sciences. Uh, explain th this three-body problem for me and, and, and this, this discovery. So the three-body problem is a very old problem in astrophysics and physics in general. Okay. It, um, it dates actually all the way back to Newton. And then oh, wow. people like Poincaré and so on. And, um, and it's, a, it's a problem because it's an unsolved problem. And um, many times the three objects, when they interact gravitationally, they become unstable, they scatter over each other, and, um, and it's, a, um, it's also a chaotic problem. A way to understand the three-body problem, if I'll put two objects 
on a, on a tight configuration, so they're orbiting each other. And I'll put another one on a far, far away, um, far, far away from them, so on a wider orbit. And then the system is stable. So I have these two that are orbiting each other, and then with the third object, they're all orbiting in this very interesting dance. And that problem was, um, was studied in great details back in the 60s by two different individuals. They studied it um, kind of separately for some coupling this time. Um, one was um, named Yoshidi Kozai, and another one was Mikawa Ribe. And um, they, um, and later this was known as the Kozai Ribe mechanism. And they showed that what happened is that gravitational interaction on the two types objects from the very far away object can tend to make the orbit of the type object more elliptical, so making a, the ellipse more and more kind of line-like, mm -hmm. um, and oscillate from an ellipse to a circle on the expense of tilting the orbit back and forth. And that was used for quite some time, and, but not so successfully. Um, I did my PhD in cosmology, which is uh, yeah, uh, and, and the structure formation in the early, very early galaxies. But I really um, liked to work and, and was interested in a wide range of topics. And, um, and I encountered, thanks to um, another student while I was a student on this, um, on this mechanism, because I did mechanism. And frankly, I didn't really understand it. And I wasn't sure, I just didn't understand how they got these oscillations. And later when I started my postdoc, um, my postdoc time at Northwestern University, my mentor there thought about whether or not this can create hot Jupiters that are very, um, hot Jupiters are Jupiter-sized planets that orbiting their star um, on a very close orbit. And close, I mean like one day orbit. And yeah. um, just to put things in context, our innermost planet, Mercury, orbiting our sun every three months. So just imagine something as big as Jupiter orbiting once a day. Mm. And not just that, um, they observe hot Jupiters that are tilted with respect to their star spin axis. So the star is spinning like this. And in our solar system, all the, all the planets are orbiting in the same direction as the star spin. Gotcha. But, um, but these hot Jupiters are completely flipped. So it's, it was bizarre. Why would they do that? And my mentor said, can the cosine mechanism explain it? And I said, okay, I have to understand this cosine business. Yeah. Um, and I found that there was a mistake in the previous thickness. And when you correct this, you get a different behavior of the dynamics than what Kozai um, predicted, basically. And it was, so it was a lot of fun of really trying to figure this out. Sure. Um, in light of all that, though, Smada, you know, you, You've won a panoply of awards. Uh, we know that much from, we have the National Postdoctoral Award, right? uh, a program for advancing women in science. 
this is from the Wiseman. I see the Wiseman Institute of Science and the Annie Jump Cannon Prize uh, awarded by the American Astronomical Society. We can do this all day in 2015. You know, all the way to the Einstein Fellowship Award, NASA, you know, uh, among others. So I just wanted to name a few so people had that in the air. I have to ask all my guests who are as accomplished as you, who have been able to be privileged to receive such awards, really, uh, the accomplishments I think everybody has in one way or the other. Um, what do your accomplishments mean to you and to other women and girls who want to pursue this field? So I want to say something about these awards, right? Um, these awards are someone nominating me for um, in some case, so I, I will talk about actually the nomination processes in a second. But um, I think these awards mean that I have supporters and I have mentors. And I think that is the most important thing in a field like this, to find mentors that believe in me. And I am very privileged that I have several very strong in their field mentors that believe in me and see me as a person. So yes. sometimes, um, people ask me what makes a mentor a mentor. So it's a mentor who sees me as a person, understands my challenges, understands my path in life, see me as a whole, mm -hmm. and willing to back me. And I am very, very privileged to have these. And um, and I feel very honored <laughs> that people like this believe in me. You know, people who are so in my view are you know are so important in their fields sure. that they believe in me and i think this is what my accomplishments mean to me Certainly. that i have people who believe in me and that i think is the most important thing and about nominations um there's been this study i think it was, i don't know if it was very official study or someone asked or i don't mm -hmm. know i don't remember the details about um how often do men as to be nominated and how often women are waiting to be nominated. And I wasn't aware of that when I asked uh, at one point my mentor to nominate me. So what you, what's the study says that women are more inclined to ask? No, that women no. are not asking. Men are more inclined to ask. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, you know, and, and it, I think it's also kind of sometimes sound like a taboo, don't ask, don't negotiate, don't, you know, it's, a, it's what we hear, you know, it's a derivative of what we hear from society many times for sure. how we, you know, um, how girls grow up in general. And right. so I think it's a, it's a derivative of that. And even if it's not being said, it's kind of the um, subcontext, sure, which I sure. can get when I <laughs> ask the mentor to nominate me to stuff. Um, right. And the surprising ones were when I was, when I got an award, when I didn't ask to be nominated to. So that was also, um, I felt, you know, even more proud. Yeah, right, right. Or thought of me. Of so course. I was proud of them, that they thought about me. <laughs> and I was proud of myself to be honored by them. I don't know if it makes sense. No, of course. It's always, it's always that much sweeter when you didn't ask for the nomination or even when you didn't even know it was coming. I mean, I'm, I remember back in college, I won an award and I just didn't think I was going to get it. And I was at the banquet and I was like sitting there texting 
doing something else. They called my name. I was like, what? So I felt terrible at the same time. Also different, a little bit of a different context, but you know, the fact that people are thinking of you and then you hear the stories behind the scenes about how it came to be. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's definitely something that is, that is powerful. And I think sends a message across the board to people who know you and who see you for who you truly are as both a human and an academic. And that's, that's beautiful. Uh, and then you know, in terms for what it means for girls, which I think is important um, because I think there is a big need for role models. And I mentioned that I didn't have role models when, you know, when I was going through my path, but I remember very clearly the very first talk that I heard by a woman. And it was during my master's, it was by Neta Bacol, She's a professor in Princeton. She came and gave a talk program at the Hebrew University where, where I was doing my master's. Sure. And I was, I didn't understand. I didn't understand that I, this is what I was missing. Sure. <laughs> and, and she gave the talk and I was, I had this aha moment. It's like, ah, this is amazing. A woman can give an awesome talk. It was like, she can, she can do it. And I remember going to her afterwards and, and talking with her about her talk and how I was impressed and excited and inspired. And I thought how um, I was involved back then in, um, I was working for a long time in the science museum, especially during my bachelor's when I needed to um, be able to pay tuition sure. to, uh, to college. and we had different activities and I was involved in an activity to promote girls to go to sciences. And I remember it was a very, um, it was also emotional <laughs> path for me because at one point I thought, oh, I broke the glass ceiling, but then I felt that I didn't. So it was a lot of oscillations of feeling inadequate to the job of helping other, other teenagers, girls to, to see that physics is for them. Yep. Um, and I thought, like, I think seeing her really emphasized for me the, the need that people have in role models. Sure. Absolutely. And I don't think there's going to be one person in this planet that tells you that who's gone through it, who will tell you that representation doesn't matter and that role models are important. You know, I feel like I say this every, every podcast, every web series, but, you know, uh, an old colleague of mine, a friend of mine, said you know it's you know the the idea really I'm, I'm paraphrasing but you know none of us got to where we are today on our own i mean to, to think otherwise would just be ridiculous you know we've always had someone to kind of help us out in one way or the other and set that standard um <laughs> Smana, this has been great we're on our way out of here this has been lovely uh the, you and i always just vibe and flow anyway i just wanted to ask you before we go you know based on a lot of stuff you just said throughout our last hour or so together um, in terms of representation, in terms of your journey and the importance for young girls to see. Let's do me a favor, let's just wind the clock back to the early mid eighties to the early mid nineties. Smadar is on this journey. Young Smadar meets current Smadar. What do you tell her? Not to give up. Um, I actually had this thought in my head a lot. When okay. I 
Uh, would I remove some of the obstacles? Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good question to ask yourself. What do you think? No. Okay. One obstacle that I had were really tough. Um, some were really horrible. And yet I think it made me who I am today. Made me stronger. Yeah. Made me, it gave me the ability to empathize, empathize, empathize. Empathize, I got you. Empathize. It yeah. helped, it gave me the ability to empathize. Oh. I got you. It gave you the ability to empathize with others? It gave me the ability to empathize with others. Um, and and try to put myself in other people's shoes sure. to help them, to help remove their obstacles. And um, it doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, I think that for every obstacle that I encounter and was able to overcome, there were probably a lot of other women that couldn't overcome it. Sure. It's not, it doesn't mean that you have to have this hard life or whatever, a hard path to be able to get to wherever you are. It's not a rite of passage. That's right. Um, it's for me. It made me who I am. So it's good for me. But I, don't I think I, I would give maybe the younger Sundar slightly more hope than she had. Because sure. Many times where I had zero hope and then just was walking through the motion because this was my goal and I wanted to achieve it. And I, um, <laughs> it sounds kind of grim. I'm sorry. No, no, no. And, and, but now we get to say, now look at you, you know, and you think about all the hearts you've touched and all the people you've met because of your journey. And that's why these stories are so important. And that's why the people watching this who want to be, whether they want to be aspiring astrophysicists or, or not, um, it's important that they hear your voice, your story, because as I tell people all the time, there's always someone else who's going through the same thing you went through or worse. Um, and just to know that hey, there's a way out goes a long way. And so, uh, Smanar, thank you so much for joining us on the chopping block today. Before we let you go, um, how can people get in touch with you? Do you have any social media handles, any publications, any podcasts of your own? Uh, how can websites, how can people get in touch with you? I have a website and there's my email there and that email is the best way. And I do get a lot of emails. So someone wants to talk with me and I don't answer immediately, just email again. Okay. I get way too many emails and sometimes everything just gets lost. Sure. What's, and what's the website? Um, um, it's the, oh, I don't remember on the top of my head, the, the URL. It's a, okay. but if you Google Smadar knows UCLA, you'll get there. So. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Smadar, thank you so much for being here on the chopping block, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, of course, anytime. I mean, this is, this is wonderful. We'll, we'll have to do a part two to dig in a little bit more. Uh, folks, Smadar Naoz, Sherrod Robbins, with the chopping block at visceralchange.org.